Awesome. Okay. Thank you really for everybody for joining in live. We are continuing our shiur tonight on Tefillah. And in our uh, progress, we've reached the point of studying the Kaddish. Last week, to summarize, what we looked at was the early history of Kaddish and how, just to summarize, we had sources for a prayer of Yehei Abba from the Talmudic era, many Midrashim, many Gemarot, which mention a prayer of Yehei Abba. And Kaddish, as we noted, most, let me pin, sorry, pin myself. Kaddish, as we noted, um, has all the hallmarks of a prayer that is not a prayer designed by the Beit for the Beit Knesset. Rather, it is a prayer designed for the study hall. Some uh, some would call this a Tfilat Beit Hamidrash, right? A, a a prayer of base Medrash origin. This Tfilah doesn't seem to have been written as a petitionary prayer. This 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 uh, doxology, this Kaddish, this 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 praise unit seems to have been been designed to be used at the conclusion of learning in the study hall. That's what we we examined last week. Just like other prayers like Yakum Purkan or Allah Kolit Gadalvid Kadash or Uvalitzion, Yitkadalvid Kadash is a messianic doxology. It's a it's a conclusion to the studies which mentions the coming of Mashiach with hopeful if with hope for a salvation and in their time they would call such a prayer a nechemata right this was their type of prayer and it's mentioned in the kaddish right um the uh, that we more than any nechemata we could say to god so this was the background we studied last week that that the kaddish is in its origin most likely a a relic from the study hall, much like other similar uh, prayers that were used to conclude the studies. Now, this doesn't explain how it got into the liturgy proper. One theory we explored, um, which is from this is from your from Yisrael Tashma, is that perhaps the Kaddish was attached to the Baruch. Uh, in one of the prayers, at least by Shachrit, and before the Baruchu, somehow, somewhy, somebody decided to introduce the Baruchu with a Kaddish. It could be because there was a learning session before the davening. Whatever it was, the Kaddish became attached to Baruchu, so much so that in the earliest sources of a Kaddish, we always see it called Kaddishu Baruchu. And perhaps that's how it was infected into the liturgy proper. We find Kaddish already in Masechet Sofrim. It's mentioned by name in Masechet Sofrim, which is from the six or seven hundreds in the Gaonic times in Eretz Yisrael. So we know that Kaddish entered the liturgy pretty early. Exactly how? We don't know. There is some additional work that's been on, done on this by Andreas uh, Lenart also to try to explore this era, this early era, about when Kaddish became specifically a part of the liturgy. But his conclusions aren't very different than, mm -hmm. than uh, what's been done until now. And honestly, I... Um, the methodology is just is just a little bit more sophisticated. Um, but regardless, that's where we're holding. We're holding after introducing Kaddish as a rabbinic prayer. So uh, let me let me just let this person join. Okay. 
Now, so if we've introduced Kaddish as such, we still have many other types of Kaddish to explore. How, for example, do we come to a place where, how do we come to a place where we find other forms of Kaddish, like Kaddish Durabanan specifically, Kaddish Yeshlama, Chatsi Kaddish, Kaddish Yatom. We have to explore how the Kaddish evolved over time into its multiple types of forms. Now, the most famous of the Kaddishes, right? The most, the most famous form and the one that is most imprinted on everybody's, um, on everyone's psychology is, of course, the Kaddish Yatom. The Kaddish Yatom, or so-called the Mourner's Kaddish, is a Jewish ritual, which is ex extremely famous, of course, that, let me share my screen here. The Kaddish Yatom is a ritual where a person who loses a, a very close relative, like a parent, a child, a sibling, someone who loses a person like that will say Kaddish for that person, uh, typically after davening. When they go to the to 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 pray with a minyan, they will go ahead and say, "Let me just readmit Av Avner." Sorry, they will go ahead and and um, they will go. Those people will will say the Kaddish in front of the congregation, and the congregation will answer Amen. So this is yet another evolution. First, we have the 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 kaddish is is designed to to hope for mashiach after learning torah then it becomes used as an introduction to baruch Hu. then it becomes used to bridge parts of tefillahs throughout the sitter now suddenly we have this situation and it's pretty early already where and and we'll discuss the sources in a second i'm going to admit one more person okay so now we have a situation <laughs> where the kaddish suddenly has become about the atomim about the mourners and about people who have lost somebody. So how did this come to be? How did it become that the Kaddish is suddenly associated with either death, the dead people, or burial? Like, how did Kaddish suddenly become a part of, of um, how did Kaddish become a part of, of the Jewish psychology around death? So the first uh, ideas which have been thrown out were, of course, that of course, Kaddish inside of it says nothing about death. Kaddish is only speaking about grandifying Hashem's name uh, in the future and that how Hashem's name should be praised. Rather, the Kaddish, because it's speaking about uh, a utopian future, it's and a and a and a, and a, a greater God whose uh, power is all over the world. It's a type of tzidu kadin. In our psychology, even in times of darkness, we still want to praise God, and therefore. Uh, when people were in their darkest times, it gave them consolation to say Kaddish because they were expressing that they still believed in Hashem. They still had faith in even in dark times. That's one idea. The other idea is that it's a hope for the Mashiach when you're going to have Tachiyat HaMetim. The problem with this idea that Kaddish was associated with death or burial or dead people or mourners because of the parts that speak about Mashiach is that 80% of the versions of Kaddish we have from the Geone Geron, from the time of the Rishonim. 80% of those versions do not have the words For most of our evidence shows that that was not the dominant Nusach. About 20% of the Nusachot had it, but it wasn't a dominant Nusach. So therefore we can't argue that the elements about Mashiach were the most important elements 
or in somebody's psychology. What this does show us, though, is that at a very early stage, perhaps already in its earliest form, Kaddish had a lot of variation, just like there was a tefillah of Allah Kolit Kadalviet Kadash or Yakum Purkan. So too, Kaddish probably saw some experimentation and some variation over the generations. This is comes to its greatest conundrum when we when we see the Kaddish de'et Chadita. This is a famous type of Kaddish, which some people will call Kaddish Hagadol, right? So a typical Kaddish, let's say your Sfaradi, is going to have V'yatzmach Porkanei V'karev But if a person has ever finished a Masechta or been at a burial, you'll know that there's yet another Kaddish called the Kaddish de'et Chadita or the Kaddish de'atid le'et Chadita. This is a longer form of Kaddish, which specifically asks Hashem for the revival of the dead. Right, that right? who is going to in the future, and I'm just reading from the end of a, of a Bavli Shas here, um, who is going to in the future renew uh, the world and to awaken the dead and to bring them to the Chaye Elam Haba, and who's going to build the city of Jerusalem, and to put his uh, sanctuary in it. And who is going to uproot idol worship from that land. And who is going to place the worship of God into that place and uh, king and, and uh, what's it called? Reign as king in with his with his sovereignty um, and in his glory. This is the much longer form of Kaddish called the Kaddish Dietchadita, or the Kaddish Hagadol, for, to, to, to put it simply. This is a much more expanded version. So let's, for a second, discuss this ex- most expanded version, which actually talks about Tchiatam What are the earliest places we see that this Kaddish is used? Because if we're going to discuss, if we're going to find out how Kaddish got associated with the dead, Maybe we should look at this Kaddish, which actually talks about the dead and actually talks about Tchiyat So let me share my screen with you. Um, let's see if I can do this. Share a screen. And let's look together. This is a slide of Rabbi Di Solapul, who wrote one of the best uh, books on Kaddish. If anybody's interested, we discussed a little more last week. But let's discuss one of the earliest sources for the Kaddish the the The... Breita in Mesechet Sofrim says something very interesting. In the time of the Amorayim, especially Averet Yisrael, there were very peculiar, uh, to us at least, very peculiar burial rituals and bereavement rituals that people would perform after a person passed away. In other words, when a person, uh, when, when a group was going to bury another Jew, the rituals surrounding the burial were much more elaborate than Jewish rituals today. These involved a, something called the shura, which is like a row of people standing and sitting and standing, then sitting, sitting then standing in order to comfort the person. The, per, the, 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 the mourner would pass through this row of people. It includes a whole bunch of brachot. Um, and the Gemara in, in Ketubot of Chetem even mentions that they, you would have 10 people for the ceremony and you could do it all seven days of the Shiva if you had panim chadashot, just like by chatanim, just like by chasen and kala, you need panim chadashot. So too, with their ceremony of the Shiva, you could have panim chadashot in order to continue these, what, what are called birchot ha'avelim, the brachos said by the mourner. This is a very obscure 
area of Jewish history, a very obscure area of, of Jewish law. But these are called the Berchot HaAvelim. And uh, one could find it in, in Shinai and Vav in, in the tour and a couple of sources, Masech HaSoifrim. Uh, it's found in Seder of Amram has a version of it. Uh, there's, uh, it's in Yerushalmi. There's, there's a few obscure, Tesefta, of course, there's a few obscure sources who speak about these Berchot HaAvelim. So one of the aspects of the Berchot HaVelem, the brachos set over a mourner, is discussed here in Masechet Sofrim. So let's read it together. It says, When the, when the yeah. temple was destroyed, that after the destruction of the temple, uh, and this is referring to some paragraphs before about how people would, about how people would visit weddings or visit, uh, uh, what's it called, mourners, uh, Avelim, it would say after the, the destruction, when things changed, they did it a different way. This is this is how people would visit the mourners and visit the Hasadim, right? They would they would ask that the Hasadim and Avelim should come to Shul on Shabbat in order so that people can do favors for them. Chatanim, why would the, the grooms come to the to the to the to the uh, Shul on Shabbat? In order to sing their praises and to escort them to their home, right? Like a Hasan, they're gonna make an oifer for the Hasan. Um, Avelim, why did they bring the Avelim to the shul on Shabbat? After the Chazan will finish the prayers, and some versions have Shel Musaf, probably this is the evening prayers, however. Right? They bring him to the back of the shul, some say to the front of the shul. The reader, the Chazan, will go to the front of the shul or to the back of the shul to meet the mourners, the Avelim. And he would go to separately uh, fulfill the obligation of prayer for those mourners themselves. He will say a bracha for them. We assume this means the berchat havelim. And afterwards, after he says the berchat havelim for them, Omer Kaddish. He says a Kaddish for them. Now Mesechat Sofrim says something fascinating. He does not say the longer Kaddish called Alma Dati Lechadeta. The only time you're supposed to say this is not for mourners. It's not for people who are uh, thinking about death. This Kaddish was designed for the end of st a study, meaning <laughs> this is one of the earliest versions, according to the to Masechet Sofrim, if this is to be believed, and this, this version of Masechet Sofrim is early, to, early enough to know what it's talking about, then this, what we have in the Kaddish Da'atidah is one of the earliest, um, is one of the earliest versions of Kaddish. And it's not impossible that Kaddish in its fullest form originally had the paragraph of However, once it got transplanted to the liturgy, they took that part out because it wasn't, for the liturgy, for the tefillah, you don't need the part about Mashiach. For the tefillah, you just need the part about praising Hashem. So it's not impossible that this is the fullest version that at least from the, the evidence we have in Sofrim, that the, the Kaddish that we say by Siam used to be the original Kaddish set at the end of studies. It's not, this is a, a very probable uh, uh, hypothesis that to, to suggest that this was the earliest, most full study hall Kaddish, or the part of Yatzmach Korkanei was, was also a relic of, of this fuller version. And when it got transferred to the liturgy, they took out this messianic part because it was not, you didn't need a messianic doxology because you were not finishing studies. You were not finishing a sidra. So why would you have to, to, to speak about Mashiach? So this is a very early 
evidence for what uh, the Kaddish Dati Lechadita is about. The Mesechet Sofrim is saying this is not about Tchias HaMesim. It's not supposed to be said for mourners. Rather, it's supposed to be said for learning. But when the mourners come to the shul, the Chazan says a Kaddish for them. Why? It doesn't say. Maybe it's the Kaddish is to end the bracha, but, but the Berchata the, the, the the Avelim. But um, this evidence tells us that it was said for mourners, but it doesn't say why. Let's fast forward about, this is a, an example of people at, trying. I'm trying to show an example here at my slide of Ashura, but um, uh, that's a little bit, uh, a little far-fetched for most people to understand the whole the whole affair. Okay, the next evidence we have is Seder of Amram. Seder of Amram is the Seder written by Amram Gaon sometime in the 800s, 700s or late 700s, early 800s. Amram Gaon here says, uh, before the Kaddish Dalma, the, the longer Kaddish, he says, and after they finish the burial of a person, after they say the section called Fascinating. A complete 180. Rabbi Aram Gaon is saying explicitly that that the Kaddish Hagadol should be said uh, over a burial and should be connected with, with dead people and with death and with dying. For some reason, this is only said by the Kura, but this is the earliest evidence we have of a Kaddish being said in relation to burial or in relation to death. This is this is one of the earliest sources. Now, fascinating is that only 50 years later or so, maybe less, Rav Sadiagaon, who who took over in in um in, in Surah, I believe Surah Padita, he says the exact opposite, and he echoes what it says in Sofrim. He says, and when he's talking about Berkat Torah, he says, If 10 people are learning in a study hall, they should say when they're finished, etc. And then they add, etc., etc. He gives his nusach of it. And then he says at the end, there are some people who started saying it, after the burial, but that's not really the original purpose of it. Meaning, Rav Gon doesn't like this. Yes, he heard about this minhag. Yes, it was popular in the time of the Geonim. But academically speaking, this is not really what it's designed to do. So it sounds like if Sadia Gon is telling us a very valuable piece of information, that the Kaddish the Hagadol was originally for the study hall, and it only got transferred to the burial places, to the cemetery, because of its kind of, uh, of its association with Tchiat HaMetim. But he doesn't... He doesn't uh, well, he criticizes it, but he doesn't say it's us or to do. He just says this is not the original purpose of it. Fascinating. So here we are in the 800s, seeing our next stage in the evolution of Kaddish and its association with death, burial, and, and the dead. Let's move on. About 100 years, we have Rukhleinimus Bar Meshulam. Uh, this is Rukhleinimus II, whose son was Meshulam Hagadol. He lived roughly in the year 950, and he was brought from Italy to Germany by one of the, ki the kings of France, either Charlemagne or, or King Charles the Bold. Fascinating fellow. If you, if you want, there's a Wikipedia article on the Colonimus family, and there's a lot of research done on them. Regardless, Rabbeinu Colonimus, one of the earliest Rishonim, wrote a tshuva where they asked him about saying Kaddish by a cemetery. And he says as follows, Kaddish Bishura, to say the Kaddish by this uh, ceremony called the Shura, right? The, the row of people uh, comforting the mourner. Whether or not they said all those Pesukim and the Brach of Tzidu Kadin, it's a beautiful thing. 
There's no prohibition to say it. Even if you're going to say it for a person who isn't Jewish, which is amazing, right? He says you can say Kaddish for a person who is not fully Jewish. Who follows the faith. And this is what they paskin in the yeshiva in Bavel. Incredible. So we see here another source from the 10th century, before the turn of the millennium, that Kaddish was being associated with burial. So this is where we're up to historically. We're moving, we're moving in the right uh, in the right direction here. So all of this is real nice if you are trying to understand the Kaddish of what's it called? This is all really nice if you're trying to understand the Kaddish as the Kaddish ala Kfura, right? This the, the Kaddish of the of the burial. So we see that before the turn of the millennium, somehow Kaddish from the study hall became associated with burial and with the Kvura. But how do you make the next leap that the that it shouldn't be said to comfort the mourners, rather it should be said by the mourners to comfort themselves or to assist the dead person? So how do we make that leap? So let's begin with something the Machsuvitru says in the 11th century, in the in the 10 hundreds. The Machsuvitru is a work of Halacha, written by Simcha from Vitre, who was, uh, Vitre is a place in France. He was one of the Tamidim of Rashi. In the original version of the Machsar Vitre, after Arvit, there's the following instruction. After Arvit, it says that Thurman Hag was to say Pitumak Toret, after Arvit, which is uh, famously done by the early original versions of uh, Minhagim of France and of Ashkenaz. After Arvit, every night, they would say Pitumak Toret. Then the instruction comes, and I, I want to read it to you verbatim because it's it's fascinating. Um, I can't even share my screen. Might help. Here we go. Yeah, I can share my screen. Give me a second. Sorry for anybody listening. The Omed Hanar. This is after Pitumak Torah. The Omed Hanar. The Omer Kaddish. He says Kaddish umidaleg titkabal, and he skips titkabal. In other words, he says half a Kaddish. The Omer Yehesh Lama, but he just says not really half a Kaddish. He says Yehesh Lama. Says the Masoretri, clear, black and white. The Kaddish zeh eno elolech anechat atinokot. The eno bechlal sheva biyom halal ticha. The reason the 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 young the the kitanim the the youngsters right the minors. Say this Kaddish is not for any real reason. It's not because they want to uh, be mighty anything. They're only doing it to teach them how to pray. And it's not counted as one of the seven Kaddishes that we're supposed to say every day. Now, why does he have to point this out that it's not a halachic Kaddish? Because the 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 Brayta Mesechet Sofrim in Tedzayin says explicitly that a Kaddish is that a that a Katan, a minor, is not supposed to say Kaddish. So it's coming and saying, no, no, don't worry. The minor is not saying a Kaddish, which actually is halachically effect, uh, efficacious. We're just doing it because it's cute. We're doing it because we want to teach the young people uh, how to daven. Very nice minhag, very cute minhag. But there's no explanation as to who whose brilliant idea that was this. And what's interesting about the earliest sources about this French minhag is that the earliest sources call it Kaddish Katan. They don't call it Kaddish Yatom. They call it the Kaddish Alakhtanim, the Kaddish of the young people. It was a didactic practice, a minhag, done in order to educate the kids. Just like we see, we make the you know, the Moroccans, they sing, uh, 
if the if if there was if there was a katan there for Arvit, so too would they make them say the Kaddish to teach them how to uh how to how to pray. But if you fast forward about 50 to 100 years later, after the death of Rashi, um already in the generation of the Talmidim of Rashi's uh grandsons, like one of the Talmidim of of, of Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbi Yitzchak uh Ben Dorbello, he writes some glosses, some additions to Master Vitri. And in the Sidur HaRokeach and in the Arzarua already, this is uh, about 100 years after Rashi, we find a completely new curveball where they no longer call it Kaddish Kitanim, they call it Kaddish Yatom. Why? This is the Kaddish of the Yatomim. They give a story. They say, well, in France, they say, the France Minhag is, the French Minhag is that they'd let any kid say it. doesn't matter who. Just so, any kid will say it in the shul. doesn't matter if he has parents or not. Our Minhag is to only select the boys who are Yatomim and 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 let them say the Kaddish for their uh, for their parents. Why? Because of this midrash. And they go off and they and they tell the story, fascinating story. This is a this is a midrash from Kalarabati. Kalarabati is a Braita, which has some sections which are really early from the fourth century, and some sections which are really late from the Gaonim. So this, and if anyone's interested, it's in Kalarabati Perak Bit. Uh, Braita Tet, Braita Two Nine. So in Kalarabati, there's a famous midrash which is so famous, it's been called the the Maaseha Tana Imhamet, the story of the Tana and the dead man. And I think we've 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 recalled this this midrash before, but it's been told so many times in so many different versions that there was a scholar named Rela Kushalevsky. She put together seventy different versions, and I'm not kidding. 70 different versions that she found of this midrash with an analysis of each one and its evolution over the past 1700 years. Regardless, what's the story? The story is that Eitana, probably Rabbi, probably Rabbi Akiva, but it's sometimes also Rabbi Yochanan, is walking down the road, uh, meaning some sort of meditation, and he meets a man who is dead, right? He's walking through hell, uh, whether he's meditating going through hell or he's meditating going through some sort of path or a road in heaven. And he meets a man. The man is running down the road and he's in different versions. He's carrying a great burden or his face is black or he's covered in excrement, all different versions of it. And he asks him, where are you running? And he says, don't make me tarry. I am being punished. I have to go pick up all this wood every day and then I take it back and then they burn me in hell and then they, then they, they do it again every single day. And, and my uh, my uh, what's it called? My superiors are going to be mad if I if I if I run away. He says, wow, you have such a terrible punishment. Rabbi Kiva asked the man, how bad were you? What kind of person were you? And he says, oh, I was terrible. I was a Parnas. I was the head of a tax collection for a Jewish community. Or other versions were that I did every sin imaginable. And there's no hope for me. So Rabbi Akiva said, really? There's no hope for you? Can I do anything to save you? And he says, no, this, it's impossible. The only way to save me would be... Sorry. The only way to save me would be if, if I would have had a son then maybe if the son would would pray for me or say baruchu then i would be able or in some versions of the story if he would if he would get up and, and be say maftir in some versions of the story if he would get up and say baruchu then i would be able to be saved from gehenna Rabbi Akiva goes down to the earth he finds the the man's town and he finds out that the man left a pregnant wife he asks about the man everybody says he's the worst thing that ever he was the worst human that ever lived he finds the wife he finds the child that was born after the man's death he rears the child. He gives him a bris milah. In some versions, the kid didn't have a bris milah. And he teaches him Tyra until he's able to say the Kaddish. 
sorry, say Barhu. And when he says Barhu, the man is let go of let go of Ganem. Now there are many different versions of this story throughout the generations. What's important for our purposes is that that the earliest versions make no mention of Kaddish. The earliest versions are much less descriptive. They don't have, you know, the excrement on the face of the person. They don't speak about uh, the, the thorns on the person's head. They don't uh, they don't call him a Parnas. They don't go into detail about what sins he did. The earlier, if you study it philologically, um, the earlier versions are more pristine. However, this has not stopped scholars from studying all sorts of messages from this Midrash. And every generation had a different version of this Midrash. And this is what gets hysterical. Because if you look at the versions that the Hasidic Ashkenaz had available to them, the versions that they had available to them are very much uh, elaborated by the scribes. And I'm saying that with some jest, where they describe the person who is, uh, who is running down this road, this person in hell, they describe him very much like Yeshu, like all the hahu gavra, right? They, they, they use all the words that Tzohar Oseches, that he has thorns on his head. Uh, they say that he um, that he's going to be in Gehenna forever. Um, a lot of allusions and uh, a lot of very uh, different allusions to to Yeshu. Miraculously, somehow Yeshu gets out of Gehenna. But regardless, their version of the Midrash is kind of funny because of um, its anti-Christian is anti-Christian leanings. Regardless, what they do with this Midrash is they say that this Midrash proves that a person can, uh, a person by saying Kaddish can can uh, rescue somebody from Gehenna. So their versions included Kaddish Ubarhu, because as I mentioned, Kaddish and Barhu got always, were always put together. People always, would never just say Barhu, they would say Kaddish Ubarhu. So in their minds, a katan or a yatom could say kadishu barhu and then release their parents from Gehenna and that had some sort of enormous power in Shemayim. That was the view of the Hasidic Ashkenaz. One second, I'm sorry. That was the view of the Hasidic Ashkenaz that um, uh, that had this heritage of this story. For this reason, they say our practice of making the yatom say the kadish is probably the correct practice because it has such an effect in Shemayim that it can rescue people from Gehenom. Um, one second. I just have to help somebody get into the to the building. Somebody uh, trying to get into the building who cannot uh, can't get in. Okay. So, where do we move from here? So, first of all, we have to address the elephant in the room. And that is that the core theology that you can do something to save somebody from Gehenna is kind of troublesome. Let's look at this Gemara in the, Yushal in the Yushalmi. The Gemara in the Yushalmi says as follows, Amr b'yechanan, ki mi asher yechubar, yivchar ketiv, ela, kol achayim yesh pitachon, shekol zman shadam chay yesh lo tikva, met avda tikvato, mata ama bemot adam rashat hove tikva. Says to Yochanan, who is it that has been connected? It is written, he may choose. All living beings have the certitude that as long as a human is alive, he has hope. When he dies, his hope is lost. What is the reason? When an evil man dies, hope becomes lost. The Gemara is saying explicitly that so long as a person is alive, he is able to do teshuvah. 
so long as a person is alive, he's able to improve his lot. He can do things that are great for him, that can benefit him. But once he dies, there's nothing he can do for himself. Once a person dies, what are you going to do? He can do nothing for himself, nor can anybody do anything that'll help him. There's a few Makairis in in um, the Ushami. There's a few Makairis in the Midrashim that show that the view of many of the Tanoim and many of those who were in Eretz Yisrael seems to have been that it's not possible for a person that it simply is impossible for a person to change anything after they died. This was pointed out by David by by David Brodsky. He points out that many of the earliest sources uh, that come from Eretz Yisrael seem to not like this idea that you could do something to affect someone else's lot. He did what he did during his life, and that's it. Like now he's not alive anymore. How could you improve his situation in heaven? The amount of mitzvahs you did and the amount of errors you did are judged on a scale, and that's it. It's finished. And and it's interesting if you look in at the in uh, the Yerchot Chaim, he quotes a tshuva from Rav Haigaon, and they're talking about tzedakah and yom kippur, where people give tzedakah to benefit the mit. Haigaon essentially says that if you're praying or giving tzedakah to to help a person have his judgment uh, lessened that uh, Hashem shouldn't judge him so harshly in, in Shemayim, yeah, maybe tzedakah or tefillos can help for that. But to give a guy more schar in Shemayim, no, you're giving tzedakah, it's you who gets tzedakah, it's you who gets the schar. You can't give tzedakah for somebody else. You can't give tzedakah and give somebody else schar. It's like you're going to put on tefillin for someone else. You're going to put on tefillin for somebody who's dead. How does that work? So uh, tangentially, what Brodsky wants to do is he wants to show that the Talmud Bavli holds very strongly that a, that a son can uh, it says, or we say, that the Talmud Bavli shows and, and believes that a son can affect and can help the father. The father who's dead uh, cannot help the son. A father cannot change the lot of his son, but a son can help can, can help the lot of his father in Shemayim. That's his view he holds. And I, again, I don't agree with it fully because he tries to say that that uh, all of the sources from Eretz Yisrael seem to say that this is impossible. Only the Bavel, only the Bavli holds that it's possible. And and his argument is that the, that in Bavel they were influenced by the Zoroastrians who believed that a son, if he's a minor, uh, a son would be able to uh, what's the word? A son would <laughs> would be able to affect things for his father. Both caveats. Only if the son is doing a peshlucha shalah, like if the father leaves over tzedakah that the son is supposed to give, or the father instructs his son to do mitzvah, uh, mitzvahs in, uh, after he dies. If the son is doing things for the will and the commandments of his father after the father dies, then the Bavli would believe, uh, in his view, based on the Zoroastrian influences, which I, I'm skeptical about, he believes that that the Bavli um, would believe that a son can influence the, uh, the, the lot of his father in heaven and perhaps take him out of take him out of Gehenna. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I'm very skeptical that that uh, these parallels are so striking that you could say, especially the Chazal, uh, first of all, that Bavli and the Yushami argue in this regard, and second of all, the Chazal would have taken anything from from a, another religion. Uh, I, I just, I don't buy it very much. I really don't buy it. And um, for, for a bunch of technical reasons. But if you're interested, check out Brodsky's article on this. It's David Brodsky. He has an article about this. R- regardless, uh, I think we've gone on a tangent uh, on that regard. Um, moving forward a little bit, in the time of the Hasidic Ashkenaz, in, um, what's it called? 
in in Germany, they brought a few riots from Gemarot in the uh, and they which is of course Eretz Yisrael in nature, and they bring a couple of other proofs that he atom and 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 some that that the living can provide atonement for the deceased. So that was their view. Some have tried to say that, well, that's also a hashpa, because in medieval Ashkenaz, in the, tw- in the 12th century and in the 13th century, they were all mushpa from the Christians around them, who began doing all these kinds of rituals on a person's death. On their yard site, they were doing prayers, they were doing masses for the deceased, and people were doing, uh, people believed that there's uh, the belief of purgatory, which is an in-between place between hell and, 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 and heaven, uh, got to to this ex- uh, was starting to multiply. So perhaps the Hasidic Ashkenaz were also just following uh, these trends. Again, I'm skeptical. I know there is a zeitgeist over there. I don't think there's direct borrowing between the yard site. I, 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 I again look at the, uh, David Shaivitz has a has a great article going through all the all the uh, the um, the Makairis in. Uh, this is David Shaivitz. I forgot where he published this, but he, he published an excellent uh, piece on comparing what's it called? The Hasidic Ashkenaz uh, and the and the and the Rishonim in France, as well as the contemporary ideas about Gehenna. So what do we have? We have that we have a situation now we're holding in the 13th century uh, already that where the Minog spreads from France to the Rhineland to Italy, to Spain, to Yemen, all over. Eventually, it doesn't take long for this minug of the Kaddish Yatom to spread like wildfire. And already by the 13th century, um, Rabbi Yaakov Stahl found in the, I think this was the, the library in Moscow, or where was this? I wish I had it in front of me, I'm sorry. He found two chuvais from the Rishonim, obscure Rishonim, but he found two chuvais from the 13th century already, where they have a shaila that was brought to them, um, that was brought to them, where they asked, "Can a grandson say kaddish for his grandfather? And if so, does he have kedima? Does he have precedence over a child?" Right, a fascinating thing that already, a hundred years after Rabelazar uh, Keach and the Yitzchak de Orbello, you have the minog being so established that grandchildren are doing it, and that there's you know questions of precedence in the shul. There's questions. Uh, by the Maril's time, you have questions, people asking, well, uh, how long do you say it for? Do you do it for the Shiva? Do you do it for 30 days? Do you do it for 12 months? Like, how long do you do the Kaddish? And all the halachas begin to get developed. The Maril is the first uh, place to really go in depth and, and really study it in depth. But that's the the general uh, the general leaning. It, it spreads like wildfire, and it spreads like wildfire quickly. So... I don't believe personally that it spread like wildfire because of conceptions of purgatory. That doesn't sit well with me. And I don't think that that was so heavy on people's consciousness that they needed to do it, to do it that way. One very popular theory, of course, is that it spread like wildfire after the Crusades, meaning after Rashi already passed away and there were so many orphans in the shul, the the preference to give this minhag of saying the Kaddish to the orphans, especially because the parents just died and people felt bad for them, and there were so many orphans, became the dominant minhag and therefore became associated with the Asomim. And, and from when these kids grew up, they still said the Kaddish for their parents, and it became an idea that people have to say Kaddish for their parents. And I, it goes without saying that eventually the minhag spread from Kaddish to Kaddish and Baruchu, from Kaddish and Baruch Hu, it spread to the entire chakras, and from chakras, it spread to you know a person davening three times a day. So that's that's it goes without saying that that's how that 
that's how that evolution uh, transpired. Okay. Now, it should be noted that up until the medieval times, we find a, uh, up until modern times, meaning in the medieval times, the conception of saying Kaddish was changed. Let's first start. For the mourners by the burial, right? That's first. Or for the mourners in the basic Nessus. Then it goes on to be used as a Kaddish. Um, yeah, first a Kaddish by the graveside. Then we have also a Kaddish in the shul for the mourners. Then we have a Kaddish at least one time. Then we have a Kaddish from little kids. It turns into a Kaddish for Yitomim. Now, this Kaddish, the idea of it, becomes a Kaddish done not for the mourners, not for the burial, not on the not not to remind us of Tzchiasa Mesem. Rather, the function of the Kaddish becomes a magic thing where it's going to save pe people from Gehenna. But in the modern era, once you cross over into the 15th century and the 16th century, a sharp change happens. And that is that the Mikubalim get involved. Once the Mikubalim get involved, a very big change in thinking happens about the Kaddish. Because the, because the Mikubalim dis disagree with the Hasidic Ashkenaz. And to generalize, what, I'm gonna, what, what I'll say is that people like the Arizal say that the Kaddish is not to save somebody from Gehenna. Rather, what the Kaddish does is that it elevates people from one level of Ganeidah to a higher level. If they're on one lower level, they go to a higher level. This brought a sharp distinction between the Minhagim that evolved in Ashkenaz versus the Minhagim that evolved in Spain. At first, there were Paiskim in Spain who really didn't like this. The, the, the Sephardim didn't really like Kaddish, and not all Sephardim said Kaddish, Yasom. That's because Paiskim, like the Abu Durham and, um, and the Beis Yosef, didn't really like the whole idea of Kaddish, Yasom, because, you know, bringing, you know, the, this chus of taking someone out of Gehenim didn't really sit well with them at all. Rather, now that there's this new idea that you could give them a higher level in Gan Eden, it becomes much more positive. So the Ashkenazim, for example, wouldn't do it on Shabbos because there's nobody's in Gehenim on Shabbos. They wouldn't do it for 12 months straight because they didn't want to show everybody that, uh, you know, the person's in Gehenim for 12 months. Rather, they do it for 11 months to make pretend he isn't in Gehenim. All sorts of different uh, clever tricks to associate Kaddish with Gehenim. Well, the Sephardim would do Kaddish on Shabbat. The, the Sephardim uh, would, would, could do it for 12 months. The, the Sephardim developed a whole bunch of different minhagim because for them it was much more positive. And for them, uh, the, the meaning of the power of Kaddish took a different form. And I want to discuss many more of those developments uh, next week and the next week's shiur, as, as well as how these changes in the different minhagim changed in the modern era. That's what I want to really do next week as to how the Kaddish Atom as to how the Kaddish Atom evolved. The last thing I'll mention is my own theory. And this you could take with your own grain of salt. But some people have tried to say, of course, that the Kaddish Atom spread because of the Crusades. Some people say it became very popular because of shifting ideas of purgatory. Some people said um, it became popular because of the printed book, which I very much doubt. Because we find we find we find this, you know, we, we find this minhag spreading like wildfire. My own theory is that the, the if you're going to find the real source for why Kaddish became so popular, is you simply have to look at the at the core anthropology of it. You have to look at the core psychosocial benefit of Kaddish. And the truth is, Kaddish works. Kaddish, as described by people who study. Uh, the who study bereavement rituals is a bereavement ritual. Every single culture has a has a rich set of bereavement rituals. And when Kaddish got added to our set 
of of bereavement rituals it was found to be extremely powerful originally our bereavement rituals consisted of the shiva and the kura and the kriya and all of the the various uh, the shura all of the rituals up until that point but there was something special about the kaddish something special about this bereavement ritual which really really spoke to people and really connected people both to themselves both to the community and both to the shul my opinion is that the psychosocial benefit of it was what I'm going to just pause the recording because we're doing Kaddish. Give me one second. Okay. Let me just. Oh boy. Okay. Resume the recording very quickly. So let me just quote for you a couple of one piece from, from people who have said Kaddish for people that they lost and explain to you the power that Kaddish has. And if you look at my screen, this is a quote from a person writing an essay about how they said Kaddish and how it affected them. So this person said, strangely, I never made peace with the words. The Aramaic felt like shards of glass in my mouth, sharp and a little dangerous. Yet my life revolved around it. I rarely left my neighborhood, tethered as I was to my home, where no one looked at me funny or showed anything but respect for my daily presence. Even on days where I could barely put one foot in front of the other, I dragged myself out of bed and into the community of worshipers at 6.30 a.m. and then back from Mincha and Meyerbe, heartbeat later. Even when all I wanted was solitude, the meager warmth of my aloneness, I had to venture out, and on some level, this saved me. Essentially, what he's saying, sorry, she actually, to be honest, um, what this person is saying is that the Kaddish is a, is a bereavement ritual which speaks to people on very deepest levels. And... Uh, Anthropologists love Shiva. Anthropologists and, and psychologists love Shiva, and they love all the Jewish bereavement rituals because they work. And here's just one excerpt here from... Here's one excerpt from a... Uh, I have to speak lowly because they're they're starting to pray. But here's just one excerpt from a portion of an anthropology paper. The Jewish morning rituals and saying Kaddish in particular create a rhythm for the year of mourning. They establish a new routine that replaces the one that included the deceased. People feel that it connects them to the disease, to their family, and to the community. Standing to say Kaddish signals to the community that the mourner's life has changed and reminds those around them that the bereaved need support. The rituals create a space where grief is not only acceptable but expected, a regular reminder to the bereaved that they are not supposed to be over it yet. In particular, many feel a, a sense of camaraderie with the other mourners. The daily or weekly minyan becomes a grief support group, a place where people understand what the bereaved are going through as, as those nearing the end of their year welcome those with newer losses. Um, essentially, what I'm trying to say with these excerpts is that even Goyim, even, even non-from Jews understand that Kaddish has the power for a person to work through their grief. It has the power to help people through the year of Shiva. It has the power to help people internally and individually navigate grief. And it also has the power to help people socially and as a community with their community to navigate grief. And it's, it's a very beautiful power that makes Kaddish Yatom so powerful. Um, thank you for your attention. I have to hang up now because we're starting, uh, uh, what's it called? We're starting our beat. So I'm going to end the, the recording now. But thank you to everybody for your attention and your time. And I'm going to pause the recording now.